Hi, Glenn Brockett with Pioneer 90.1 FM, and we have a very, very special guest with us. We are going to be talking about a film that uh, not, well, at the beginning of this week that we are recording this interview, turned 25 years old. It's been 25 years since this movie first came out. I'm talking about the uh, amazing film put out by Joel and Ethan Cohen called Fargo. Well, our guest uh, today uh, is a reporter, documentarian, and filmmaker, and he's the author of a great new book about the movie Fargo called A Lot Can Happen in the Middle of Nowhere. Boy, don't I know it. The untold story of the making of Fargo. And we're going to, it's such a, I mean, I'm, I, it's so great of him to uh, take some time to talk about this book, especially considering it, as we are recording, it's the week of the anniversary. So man, it's, it's great to have him on. Todd Melby, thank you for uh, coming on the, and chatting with me about this brand new book and talking Fargo. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Absolutely is right. And boy, hard to believe it really is because I can remember, you know, it seems like yesterday, but then again, I call that four score and many pounds ago watching and, and, and you know, the hype, the hype for this movie and then the release of it uh, up here, and, you know, nationwide and how it became this uh, sleeper hit uh, for the Cohen brothers. But the thing I really took uh, note of was when it, not necessarily when it first came out in theaters, but when it came out on home video how some of my older my relatives and stuff and some of the people i uh, grew up around watched this movie and it was really a divided sort of thing in regards to you know uh dialogue and stuff with the movie i mean it again this movie yeah, yeah you know it, it, this movie really really had uh you know they had the fan who really really loved it or the one who was really put off by the uh by the accent because i mean i like i said when we my cousins and i were talking about about it and they're like you know what it reminds us more of like our our grandparents and our great aunts and uncles but yeah that's what i can really remember when i think about fargo so it was really nice to kind of take a walk down memory lane and and, and with this book man really get to learn a lot about the making of the film lots of good 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 stuff but yeah when i think about fargo i think about my uh you know now they're no longer with us i think about my grandparents and my my aunties and uncles yeah, yeah, well, you know, me too. You know, I grew up in western North Dakota, and my my grandmother was, you know, she was um, on a cattle ranch in, in western South Dakota, and that's where my mom grew up. And so I remember Grandma Thorstenson, though that side of the family always pronounced it Torstenson. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've got the Scandinavians in my heritage. Um, and I know lots of people are sensitive about the dialect, about the accent. But, you know, when I travel, when I go to Boston, I was going through security at the airport in Boston not, not too long ago, you know, a couple of years ago. And I heard a guy speaking with a Boston accent. And I was like, and I just wanted to listen to him because that Boston accent was so distinct and I was enjoying it so much. Yeah. And, you know, the Coen brothers, when you really stop and think about each of their movies, uh, they're all very specific to place. And Ethan Coen's... Uh, says in the book that uh, for he and his brother Joel, when they sit down to write, that accent is really a way to get into character and place. You know, so their their very first movie, Blood Simple, is in West Texas, and and then their next movie, Race in Arizona, was in Arizona. So each Cone Brothers movie is super specific to place and character and people. So obviously, when they were writing about Minnesota, they were born here. They thought about the way that some of the people here talked, and so that was their way to get into that place and to set it in a very specific 
uh, landscape. Mm-hmm. And speaking of settings, I mean, for this, I mean, the story of, of that is Fargo is a, a rather twisted uh, comedy crime sort of a film with murder and all of that. But, you know, when you think about, you know, movies and locations, you know, I mean, you know, things can happen anywhere. Yeah, but I mean, when we think about movies in regards to, there's a little bit more of a, you know, there's a little bit more of a, I guess uh, the locale is a little bit different than what we have here with Fargo, because this was a movie that was not uh, in any sort of glamorous part of the country. This was up here in the old meat and potatoes, uh, upper Midwest. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, I interviewed Bane Bilkey for the book. Uh, Bane played the character of Mr. Mora, who is the guy with the broom in the driveway. Oh, the Halloc scene? Yeah, the Halleck. Halleck yeah, so scene, yeah. Yeah, so Bane was up in Halleck. He was the guy with the broom. And he's originally from uh, War Road. And so he's, you know, he talks about how he you know, just grew up speaking that way. And that's just the way Bane speaks. You talk to Bane today, and he sounds exactly like Mr. Mora in, in Fargo. And he was saying, um, you know, in regards to the crime, since you were talking about the crime, he was saying... He thought really it ought to be not really a Minnesota thing, but more like a Wisconsin thing. Because, you know, in Wisconsin, they've got those grisly murders with like Ed Gein and everything. He does have a good point there with, uh, you know, you bring up a reference like Ed Gein. That's kind of a hard one to like, well, um, yeah, that's a hard one to respond back and fire back on. But uh, (laughs) yeah, he was a little protective about Minnesota. (laughs) But that's okay. That's okay. I mean, yeah. This movie, I mean, you talked about the the, the Cohen brothers. I mean, again, Minnesota, that's some great, another great representation of our state. But just in their creativity and stuff, and I mean, in this book, we kind of get to know a little bit about uh, where they came from and uh, just how just how fascinated they were by film at a very young age and some of the things that they were drawn to, and and then how that ended up playing out into uh, just a very eclectic career as far as filmmakers, but a very well done career. But they were just at a very young age. This was was something that they connected to with film absolutely yeah and they're super smart they grew up with super smart parents i mean their their dad was an economist at the university of minnesota so he had a, he had a, a phd uh when they were born their mom only had a master's degree but then while the, the kids were getting older she continued to study and she eventually got her phd in in art history from the university of minnesota so they, they really grew up in a, in a household where, where people read books and wrote um and, and of course, they also started to see lots of movies and lots of TV shows. And the, the great thing I think about like how they grew up was that they, they didn't really differentiate between, say, F Troop, Lassie Comes Home, and then sort of highbrow French movies that they might have seen at the, the U Film Society or even sometimes on television. So they, they had, the, had this like great mix of reading, writing, TV watching, film watching, and kind of kind of just learning all of that. And then when they were um, teenagers, uh, Joel saved up some lawn mowing money and he bought an, an eight millimeter camera. And then he and his brother and some, some friends started making these backyard movies where they would sort of make up their own movies or they would recreate movies on this little eight millimeter camera. 
Mm-hmm. And you know we we talk we're going to talk, we talk about the movie Fargo now. Let's go now to where you know let's let's, let's go right before the the beginning of what became the movie and the making of the movie, and, and let's just go right into mm-hmm. where the Cohen brothers were were at as far as uh, uh, their fame. Uh, in fact, they they were they were taking some lumps because uh, their previous movie, which was a big uh, budget flick, which I didn't mind, but I mean it just didn't. I liked it. it yeah, yeah, the Hudsucker Proxy. It, it it didn't get over as far as some mass populist sort of a thing. But what was it like for them to be, to come off from from something like like the Hudsucker Proxy with the with the budgeting and all that into something a little bit darker and, and taking on this this uh, movie Fargo? Yeah, well, as far as darker goes, they never had a problem with with darkness. No, <laughs> I mean, no, that's never. For sure, right? People are always getting whacked in their movies. But 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 you're absolutely right about the Hudsucker Proxy. They had gotten a big budget and they had thirty million dollars to spend on the Hudsucker Proxy. And I liked it. It seems like you liked it, too. But like when it came out, very, very few people saw it in the theater. As a matter of fact, Joel jokes that um, he was surprised that the studio didn't repossess Ethan's car. So few people <laughs> saw the movie. <laughs> but they soldiered on. But they soldiered on. Like they have scripts that they've, that they've written that cost a lot of money to make and scripts that don't cost very much money to make. So this was you know, clearly and they're not going to cost very much money to make. So I, I really don't think they had huge expectations as far as like how well it would do um and then they were when it did do well they were super surprised that like people were attracted and infatuated with this story of a a brainerd cop who was pregnant and solves a triple homicide i mean who would think that that would become you know this american classic that was you know inspired a tv show won a couple of oscars etc yeah, as opposed to something like the Hutsucker Proxy, which had, had like winks and nods to the old studio system of the of, of yesteryear that had that big sort of film appeal to it, where and you had Paul Newman and, and, and Tim Robbins, you had this and big had robust Newman, cast. Right? Yeah, you had this big robust cast, but with this one, I mean, I think you know again they're pleasantly, pleasantly surprised by it, but again it goes back to a to a solid story, and and again this this story right. and the and the fact that that the, this story that they they put at the beginning was based on real events was uh, something that uh, was a creation of its own sort of uh, device of controversy because people would you know once this movie became a hit a lot of people were starting to wonder even when the movie was starting just to come out in theaters were wondering what these events were and, and got people on these uh, I guess amateur sleuthing sort of things to try to find out which you know what was inspired by directly but in your book you you, you bring out some examples of things that could have been in uh, you know on the radar of uh, of Joel and Ethan uh, you know during you know there when they were younger but it was very interesting that uh, those stories and how they added to, to possibly to what became the story of Fargo but yet people people were really curious about this because they did put this based on real events sort of a tag at the beginning of it so that brought with it yeah, a lot of did. interest and intrigue to it exactly yeah 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 because like when a filmmaker says this is a true story they didn't say this is based on a true story or this no. was inspired by true events they said this is a true story and then they even suggest that they've talked to the survive the you know the families of the people who were who were killed so you know there's they did that for a couple of reasons they did it uh, i believe because they didn't have to uh you know follow the traditional you know crime drama format for that you know they didn't have to have like this giant climax and then um and then it also influenced how they made the movie as far as the photography went the camera doesn't move very much in fargo where it moves a bunch in, in 
in some of their other movies. So it kind of gave it a, a documentary feel. Oh, absolutely. And then as, 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 as far as the murders and kidnappings go, there was a, uh, there was a husband who hired a guy to murder his wife. Um, that happened in St. Paul, Minnesota uh, in the 1950s or 1960s. That was the, the, uh, the Carol Thompson murder case. And another famous case in Minnesota was uh, the kidnapping of, of uh, Virginia Piper, who was you know, nabbed from her suburban backyard in the Twin Cities and taken up to Jay Cook State Park um, and basically tied to a pine tree for a couple of nights. But then her family paid up, paid it off, and she was she lived. Um, and then I discovered, um, just thank, thankfully, a friend told me about this. I hadn't heard of it, but a friend told me about a case in Connecticut where an airline pilot killed his wife and then chopped up her body with a wood chipper. And at his trial in Connecticut in the 1980s, the prosecution played like a, a videotape of a, of, a, of a dead pig being chopped up by a wood chipper just to sort of show the jury how violent being chopped up by a wood chipper might be. So, I mean, I got to think that that Connecticut case was a complete inspiration for the wood chipper in Fargo. And and, and, and what a conversation piece the wood chipper became after uh, this this movie. <laughs> I mean, I'm I you know from where I'm interviewing you today in Thief River Falls, uh, you know, we're not too far up the uh, down the road from Fargo. Uh, the actual yep. Fargo. I mean, and uh, one of the things that they've uh, been able to have at their visitors bureau was um, was uh, the wo- the wood chipper, I, which I've been to, and I love the fact that it's in Fargo, which is where it should be. Mm-hmm. But the whole thing about this movie, though, Fargo in title, but there really wasn't all that much to do with Fargo except for uh, you know with with Jerry Lundegaard. I mean, just doing some traveling, kind of kind of setting it up, right. but. You're right. No, you think about like, you know, uh, North Dakota is basically the bookend of the movie. So you've got, you know, Jerry goes up to the, the kicking club's bar in Fargo to set up the deal where, you know, the two guys will kidnap his wife. But, you know, it's a, it, it's a no rough stuff type of deal. <laughs> and then at the very end, he's arrested in a motel, which is supposedly outside of Bismarck, North Dakota. So North Dakota and Fargo is kind of this this sort of place of the mind, this sort of evil place where bad things happen, uh, kind of like Chinatown in the movie Chinatown. But in between, it's it's all Minnesota. But the thing, too, that, you know, in reading this book and, and taking me back to it, uh, remembering the time uh, right around the timeline of when this was filmed, uh, we had a winter that, you know, there was a winter you know, that really was one of the more milder winters. And how did that play into you know, as far as getting this, uh, getting some of the shots that were needed, because I mean, you, when you, th- you the thought of uh, getting this and filming it in winter in Minnesota, you would think there would be just instant, you know, things would be falling right into place. But Mother Nature had different plans that that winter, and uh, they in the movie and the crew they had to do some some adjustments. But yeah, Mother Nature just wasn't working for them. Not at all. Not at all. There, it was extremely mild. Had no snow in the Twin Cities during January. February and March of 1995. And so after hoping that the weather would change, that, you know, the snow would come so they could film, you know, out, you know, in the exurbs of, uh, of Minneapolis, St. Paul for those, those big outdoor scenes, they just gave up and they, you know, ended up caravanning up to, to Grand Forks and spent a couple of weeks uh, north of Grand Forks to film the exterior scenes. So those, uh, those murder investigation scenes of, you know, Marge, when she first comes across the triple homicide and she's got the coffee and she says, I think I'm going to barf. Uh, that was filmed in Pembina County, North Dakota. 
uh, as well as you know the uh, Steve Buscemi burning, uh, not burning, but kind of burying the money in the snow. So they had to go almost to the Canadian border to find snow that winter. Yeah, and then ending up in all places, Halleck, Minnesota, too, which was also a big surprise. Right. Again, I mean, we people still refer to it. Oh, that's over there where the they filmed Fargo. I mean, again, that's that, right. that Midwestern sort of a thing. But it was just amazing that. And then, and, then, and, then, and then you know when you watch that scene, you can see that the snow is melting. I mean, you can you can see the you know the water in the uh, you know in the uh, curb by the street there. And, yeah, you know they didn't give Bane Bilkey a, a shovel. They gave him. A, they gave him a broom. That's what I was. You know, I was going to mention. They didn't even give the guy a, a, a freaking shovel. <laughs> <laughs> right, which he's pissed about in the book. He says, like, you know, you know, these people. He was, you know, Brain is very much a theater guy. He doesn't watch movies. His his whole career was spent in the theater. So he'd much rather talk about, um, you know, Sam Shepard or you know some other playwright. Uh, he really didn't know who Joel and Ethan Cohen were, but. People just told him he should audition because he's got the perfect Minnesota accent. And so he was super focused on the theater and um, was kind of, I mean, I don't know how, if he was really upset, but you know, he claims he was upset about the fact that they gave him a broom and not a shovel. Mm-hmm. And that brings us right into talking about the, the cast. And uh, so, we'll, we'll talk about a few, a few members of the cast, including uh, Frances McDermott. Uh, her performance as Marge Gunderson, Academy Award worthy, uh, was just such a, a big, big part. She she steals it I mean, anytime she's on the screen. But she and William H. Macy, of course, as the uh, sales manager, of the the Oldsmobile dealership, Jerry Lindegard. I mean, those two. Let's talk a little bit about the, those guys. And of course, Francis, in court has you know married to one of the brothers. But I mean, was she as easy, you know, easy enough to get on board with this project right away? Uh, what was the story about getting? I mean, because I mean, I hear about William H Macy, and there's been stories about how he was very eager to be a part of this movie. So let's talk about Francis McDermott and William H Macy. Yeah. So Macy. Uh auditioned multiple times for this part. He really, really wanted the part. And, you know, he flew to New York and crashed an audition just so he could, you know, audition for Joel and Ethan a second time. He claimed that he would shoot Ethan's dog if he didn't get the part. Uh, He really wanted it. Uh, The script was was written with three actors in mind. So three people did not have to audition. That would be uh, Francis McDormand, uh, Peter Stormare, and uh, Steve Buscemi. But everybody else had to audition and fight for their roles. And again, and this cast is so amazing. I mean, Steve Buscemi, I mean, this was this guy is the character actor's character actor, just talent. Whenever you see him in a movie, whether it would be, uh, I mean, he was just a few years just out of Reservoir Dogs. I mean, whether it was that or, or you know, uh, on Boardwalk Empire, just a few examples. I mean, Steve Buscemi, I mean, one of those, He's the, he is a modern-day classic uh, character actor who does so much, and we, we just wish he uh, would get an Oscar. This guy needs awards because this talent, I mean, and, and he was just such a down-to-earth. True. And, you know, he just has such a down-to-earth vibe to him, too. I mean, this was a kind of a, a man's man who, uh, you know, when he was building his career, was also working as a fireman. But him as in the role of Carl Showalter, I don't see anybody else. I really don't because he is that perfect amount of smart, man. You just you wait for his comeuppance. You just wait for his comeuppance. Yeah, and, you, and you know, his face is so unattractive, and the, you know, with the really bad mustache you put on him, and and they made him a blabbermouth. I mean, Joel and Ethan, for some reason, when they were writing this, they just thought, you know, we think Buscemi would be a great blabbermouth, and so we're just going to give him lots of lots of lines. 
um, even though apparently he's not one in real life. But they thought, you know, pairing a blabbermouth with like a stoic, non-talkative Swede would be perfect. Would it kill you to say something? <laughs> I still think about him as Mr. Pink and uh, the whole thing about not tipping. <laughs> I know. It's like, why do I have to be Mr. Pink? Exactly. Exactly. Why, I, gotta, I want to pick my own color. No, you can't pick your own color. That's the greatest, greatest of movies like a Reservoir Dogs. It's just the dialogue. And again, let's go back to Francis McDermott. I mean, again, this was, as Marge Gunderson, this, again, this is another one of those like Steve Buscemi. I just really couldn't see anybody else taking this role yeah, because yeah, it was just tailor made yeah, for her. She was, yep. Yep. She was fantastic. And she, um, she had a, a little bit of a hard time getting into the role, getting into Marge Gunderson and, and being Marge Gunderson and also sort of you know, I think struggling just a little bit with the accent, like how much accent should she have? Um, one thing we haven't talked about is is the, the dialect coach. Yes, I would uh, love Cones to hear hired, about this. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so the Cones hired Elizabeth Himmelstein. She's a dialect coach, and this is something that happens in the movies. Dialect coaches help actors with their Boston dialect or their Minnesota dialect. And sometimes, if the, you know, if the actor is Australian or New Zealand and it takes place in America, their job is to sort of mask their other accent and make sure that they fit in. But in this case, the dialect coach told me that, that she, um, that she was super impressed by the Coen brothers script, that she, that she, she described the script as being um, musical, as being sort of, you know, written for the ear. And when you read the script, you'll see that um, Joel and Ethan wrote it in the dialect. So, you know, believe me is not two words. It's one word, like believe me. Um, so there's just dozens and dozens of those things in the script. And so McDormand worked with Himmelstein and as did a bunch of other non-Minnesotans. And, um, and also Francis spent four hours in uh, a hotel room with Larissa Cochrane. She was the actor who played hooker number one. Oh yeah. And, and Larissa is from Minneapolis and she's just really, really good at the accent. And so the dialect coach invited Larissa to Francis's hotel room just so they could have salads and just and just have the opportunity for Francis to hear Larissa speak in the accent for four hours straight. That has a little bit more of a natural vibe to it. I mean, when you have something like that, it's more of a natural, not a force sort of a thing. So that's uh, that's kind of a win a win in both. It's it's a win win really because not only is she getting to know a a member of the cast, but she's also gleaning some knowledge and, and from her dialect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and Mike, the actor who played Mike Yanagita, the actor, uh, Stephen Park, um, in that memorable hotel scene oh. where, you know, I love you so much, Margie. <laughs> You're such a super lady. So he he didn't put much accent into his character at the beginning uh, when, they, when he was first rehearsing, and you know, early on in the role. And Again, the Cone Brothers just had Himmelstein work with uh, with Stephen Park and just to push it, just keep pushing those O's, push those long E's. You know, don't say TV, say TV. I saw you on the TV, Marge. You know what that Mike's the scene with uh, Mike and, and Marge. I, you know, it's it's almost on par for me when I think of movies around that time. Of uh, and I think about cringeworthy moments. It's right there with the John Favreau calling the girl up after he gets the uh, gets her phone number on, in Swingers, and he keeps messing up and he keeps calling and keeps calling to when she finally <laughs> just says, "Don't ever call me again," because it just it was just such a grind, and you're like, "Don't do it, quit doing it." But he still is just ever persistent because he wants to wrong this right and. 
ends up just uh, ends up just by himself in the end. But that is one of those. That's in that line of cringe. <laughs> it is. It is. But you know, uh, there are people like that in the world. And you know, Steve Stephen told me about how he, you know, he he really didn't see that scene as funny. He saw really just his character's desperation and like sort of real human desire to connect and like you know he you know his, he felt his character was isolated and he just he just really wanted to you know to have that human connection with Marge. Mm-hmm. And you we talked about uh, the cast but you know there was a, a good Minnesota representation in this and also uh, a guy that really got discovered uh, you know and played in the role of Norm Gunderson a guy who was very talented on the world of stage ended up getting a, a pretty decent career in in, in, in stage and not only in screen and television and all that was John Carroll Lynch. Yeah, he's fantastic. You're right. He played Norm Gunderson. He had worked at uh, the Guthrie Theater. And uh, by the way, I have his, his audition tape on my website, along with some of the other audition tapes, if folks want to watch him. Uh, that's at toddmelby.com slash book. You can you know, find out more information about the book there. And uh, yeah, his, 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 his career is really, really skyrocketed. He was on American Horror Story, and he's now on the, uh, I believe it's an ABC TV series called Big Sky. Uh, he's one heck of an actor. Mm-hmm. One hundred percent. And as uh, we're, we're, we start to wrap up today, I want to talk just about how much time you you put into this project. I mean, the research that you, you went into it. I mean, looking for scripts, finding stuff, uh, tracking down people to interview. Uh, about how long of a process was it? Because you were kind of bit by the Fargo bug early on with a radio documentary that was very, very good. I might add. I just re-listened to it uh, a couple of days ago. But let's talk about just what went into uh, what on your end uh, putting this book together. Sure. Yeah, yeah, it was a multi-year project. Um, I mean, like you mentioned, uh, I had done a one-hour radio documentary with my wife and producing partner, and we did that for the 20th anniversary, so that was five years ago. And we'd interviewed Himmelstein, the dialect coach, William H. Macy, Stephen Park, uh, Tony Denman, who played Scotty, a couple of the other actors. And then that project finished, and I was just still obsessed with it. And I just thought, I just thought, wow, I've never written a book. This could be a book. <laughs> and then I got intimidated by the idea, like, oh, my God, it's, a book is going to be so much work. But I pitched the idea to the Minnesota Historical Society Press. They liked it. They approved it. And then I just buckled down and did it, which meant a lot of, um, you know, obviously dozens and dozens of, of phone interviews, lots of research, and then just basically locking myself, you know, in a room on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday mornings and spending four hours in front of the computer and just writing and rewriting. And that effort really shines through. It's a great book. I can't recommend it enough for those uh, who are fans of the film Fargo. Of course, this is the week Fargo turns 25. It's a lot can happen in the middle of nowhere. The untold story of the making of Fargo. I want to thank uh, Todd Melby for taking some time and uh, chatting about the book and the movie. And again, where can uh, people go uh, to, you know, if curious enough to uh, check out the book or check out some stuff on your website? Could you give us that information once again before we part? today? Sure, sure. Yeah, the website is just is toddmelby.com. My name, T-O-D-D, Melby, M-E-L-B-Y. And you can buy the book wherever you like to buy books. You can buy it at your local bookstore or, of course, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local library. So yeah, check it out. A lot can happen in the middle of nowhere. For Pioneer 90.1, I'm Glenn Brockett.